Chapter Eleven of Theophrastus Such by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Josh Middledorf. Chapter Eleven: The Wasp Credited with the Honeycomb. No man, I imagine, would object more strongly than Euphorion to communistic principles in relation to material property, but with regard to property and ideas, he entertains such principles willingly and is disposed to treat the distinction between mine and thine in original authorship as egoistic, narrowing, and low. I have known him, indeed, to insist at some expense of erudition in the poor right of an ancient, a medieval or an eighteenth-century writer, to be credited with a view or a statement lately advanced with some show of originality, and his championship seems to imply a nicety of conscience toward the dead. He is evidently unwilling that his neighbors should get more credit than is due to them, and in this way he appears to recognize a certain proprietorship, even in spiritual production. But perhaps it is no real inconsistency that, with regard to many instances of modern origination, it is his habit to talk with a Gallic largeness and refer to the universe. He expatiates on the diffusive nature of intellectual products, free and all-embracing as the liberal air on the infinitesimal smallness of individual origination compared with the massive inheritance of thought on which every new generation enters, on that growing preparation for each epoch through which certain ideas or modes of view are said to be in the air and, still more metaphorically speaking, to be inevitably absorbed so that everyone may be excused for not knowing how he got them. Above all, he insists on the proper subordination of the irritable self, the mere vehicle of an idea or combination which, being produced by the sum total of the human race, must belong to that multiple entity, from the accomplished lecturer or popularizer who transmits it to the remotest generation of Fugians or Hottentots, however indifferent these may be to the superiority of their right above that of the eminently perishable dyspeptic author. One may admit that such considerations carry a profound truth to be even religiously contemplated, and yet object all the more to the mode in which Euphorion seems to apply them. I protest against the use of these majestic conceptions to do the dirty work of unscrupulosity and justify the non-payment of conscious debts which cannot be defined or enforced by the law. Especially since it is observable that the large views as to intellectual property, which can apparently reconcile an able person to the use of lately borrowed ideas as if they were his own, when this spoliation is favored by the public darkness, never hinder him from joining in the zealous tribute of recognition and applause to those warriors of truth whose triumphal arches are seen in the public ways, those conquerors whose battles and annexations even the carpenters and bricklayers know by name. Surely the acknowledgment of a mental debt which will not be immediately detected and may never be asserted is a case to which the traditional susceptibility to debts of honor would be suitably transferred. There is no massive public opinion that can be expected to tell on these relations of thinkers and investigators, 
relations to be thoroughly understood and felt only by those who are interested in the life of ideas and acquainted with their history. To lay false claim to an invention or discovery which has an immediate market value, to vamp up a professedly new book of reference by stealing from the pages of one already produced at the cost of much labor and material, to copy someone else's poem and send the manuscript to magazine or hand it about among friends as an original effusion, to deliver an elegant extract from a known writer as a piece of improvised eloquence. These are the limits within which the dishonest pretense of originality is likely to be hissed or hooted and bring more or less shame on the culprit. It is not necessary to understand the merit of a performance or even to spell with any comfortable confidence in order to perceive at once that such pretenses are not respectable. But the difference between these vulgar frauds, these devices of ridiculous jays, whose ill-secured plumes are seen falling off them as they run, and the quiet appropriation of other people's philosophic or scientific ideas, can hardly be held to lie in their moral quality unless we take impunity as our criterion. Pitiable jays had no presumption in their favor and foolishly fronted an alert incredulity. But Euphorion, the accomplished theorist, as an audience who expect much of him and take it as the most natural thing in the world that every unusual view which he presents anonymously should be due solely to his ingenuity. His borrowings are not incongruous feathers awkwardly stuck on. They have an appropriateness which makes them seem an answer to anticipation, like the return phrases of a melody. Certainly one cannot help the ignorant conclusion of polite society and there are perhaps fashionable persons who, if a speaker has occasion to explain what the occiput is, will consider that he has lately discovered that curiously named portion of the animal frame. One cannot give a genealogical introduction to every long-stored item or fact or conjecture that may happen to be a revelation for the large class of persons who are understood to judge soundly on a small basis of knowledge but Euphorion would be very sorry to have it supposed that he is unacquainted with the history of ideas, and sometimes carries even into minutiae the evidence of his exact registration of names in connection with quotable phrases or suggestions. I can therefore only explain the apparent infirmity of his memory in cases of larger conveyance by supposing that he is accustomed by the very association of largeness to range them at once under those grand laws of the universe in the light of which mine and thine disappear and are resolved into everybody's or nobody's, and one man's particular obligations to another melt untraceably into the obligations of the earth to the solar system in general. Euphorion himself, if a particular omission or acknowledgment were brought home to him, would probably take a narrower ground for explanation. It was a lapse of memory, or it did not occur to him as necessary in this case to mention a name, the source being well known, or, since this seems usually to act as a strong reason for mention, he rather abstained from adducing the name because it might injure the excellent matter advanced, just as an obscure trademark casts discredit on a good commodity, and even on the retailer who has furnished himself from a quarter not likely to be esteemed first-rate. 
no doubt this last is a genuine and frequent reason for the non-acknowledgment of indebtedness to what one may call impersonal as well as personal sources even an american editor of school classics whose own english could not pass for more than a syntactical shoddy of the cheapest sort felt it unfavorable to his reputation for sound learning that he should be obliged to the penny cyclopedia and disguised his reference to it under contractions in which u s nal took the place of the lowly words penny works of this convenient stamp easily obtained and well nourished with matter are felt to be like rich but unfashionable relations who are visited and received in privacy and whose capital is used or inherited without any ostentatious insistence on their names or places of abode as to memory it is known that this frail faculty naturally lets drop the fact which are less flattering to our self-love when it does not retain them carefully as subjects not to be approached marshy spots with a warning flag over them but it is always interesting to bring forward eminent names such as patricius or scaliger euler or lagrange bop or humboldt to know exactly what has been drawn from them is erudition and heightens our own influence which seems advantageous to mankind whereas to cite an author whose ideas may pass as higher currency under our own signature can have no object except the contradictory one of throwing the illumination over his figure when it is important to be seen oneself all these reasons must weigh considerably with those speculative persons who have to ask themselves whether or not universal utilitarianism requires that in this particular instance before them they should injure a man who has been of service to them and rob a fellow workman of the credit which is due to him after all however it must be admitted that hardly an accusation is more difficult to prove and more liable to be false than that of a plagiarism which is the conscious theft of ideas and deliberate reproduction of them as original the arguments on the side of acquittal are obvious and strong the inevitable coincidence of contemporary thinking and our continual experience of finding notions turning up in our minds without any label on them to tell us whence they came so that if we are in the habit of expecting much from our own capacity we accept them at once as a new inspiration then in relation to the elder authors there is the difficulty first of learning and then of remembering exactly what was wrought into the backward tapestry of the world's history together with the fact that ideas acquired long ago reappear as the sequence of an awakened interest or a line of inquiry which is really new in us whence it is conceivable that if we were ancients some of us might be offering grateful hecatombs by mistake and proving our honesty in a ruinously expensive manner on the other hand the evidence on which plagiarism is concluded is often of a kind which though much trusted in questions of erudition and historical criticism is apt to lead us injuriously astray in our daily judgments especially of the resentful contemporary sort how pythagoras came by his ideas whether saint paul was acquainted with all the greek poets what tacitus must have known by hearsay and systematically ignored these are points on which a false persuasion of knowledge 
is less damaging to justice and charity than an erroneous confidence supported by reasoning fundamentally similar of my neighbor's blameworthy behavior in a case where i am personally concerned no premise requires closer scrutiny than those which lead to the constantly echoed conclusion he must have known or he must have read i marvel that this facility of belief on the side of knowledge can subsist under the daily demonstration that the easiest of all things to the human mind is not to know and not to read to praise to blame to shout grin or hiss where others shout grin or hiss these are native tendencies but to know and to read are artificial hard accomplishments concerning which the only safe supposition is that as little of them has been done as the case admits an author keenly conscious of having written can hardly help imagining his condition of lively interest to be shared by others just as we are all apt to suppose that the chill or heat we are conscious of must be general or even to think that our sons and daughters our pet schemes and our quarrelling correspondence are themes to which intelligent persons will listen long without weariness but if the ardent author happen to be alive to practical teaching he will soon learn to divide the larger part of the enlightened public into those who have not read him and think it necessary to tell him so when they meet him in polite society and those who have equally abstained from reading him but wish to conceal this negation and speak of his incomparable works with that trust in testimony which always has its cheering side hence it is worse than foolish to entertain silent suspicions of plagiarism still more to give them voice when they are founded on a construction of probabilities which a little more attention to everyday occurrences as a guide in reasoning would show us to be really worthless considered as proof the length to which one man's memory can go in letting drop associations that are vital to another can hardly find a limit it is not to be supposed that a person desirous to make an agreeable impression on you would deliberately choose to insist to you with some rhetorical sharpness on an argument which you were the first to elaborate in public yet any one who listens may overhear such instances of obliviousness you naturally remember your peculiar connection with your acquaintance's judicious views but why should he your fatherhood which is an intense feeling to you is only an additional fact of meagre interest for him to remember and a sense of obligation to the particular living fellow struggler who has helped us in our thinking is not yet a form of memory the want of which is felt to be disgraceful or derogatory unless it is taken to be a want of polite instruction or causes the missing of a cockade on a day of celebration in our suspicions of plagiarism we must recognize as the first weighty probability that what we who feel injured remember best is precisely what is least likely to enter lastingly into the memory of our neighbors but it is fair to maintain that the neighbor who borrows your property loses it for a while and, and when it turns up again forgets your connection with it and counts it his own shows himself so much the feebler in grasp and rectitude of mind some absent persons cannot remember the state of wear in their own hats and umbrellas 
and have no mental check to tell them that they have carried home a fellow visitor's more recent purchase. They may be excellent householders, far removed from suspicion of low device, but one wishes them a more correct perception and more wary sense that a neighbor's umbrella may be newer than their own. True, some persons are so constituted that the very excellence of an idea seems to them a convincing reason that it must be, if not solely, yet especially theirs. It fits in so beautifully with their general wisdom. It lies implicitly in so many of their manifested opinions that if they have not yet expressed it because of preoccupation, it is clearly a part of their indigenous produce and is proved by their immediate eloquent promulgation of it to belong more naturally and appropriately to them than to the person who seemed first to have alighted on it and who sinks in their all-originating consciousness to that low kind of entity, a kind of second cause. This is not lunacy, not pretense, but a genuine state of mind, very effective in practice and often carrying the public with it, so that poor Columbus is found to be a very faulty adventurer, and the continent is named after Amerigo. Lighter examples of this instinctive appropriation are constantly met with among brilliant talkers. Aquila is too agreeable and amusing for anyone who is not himself bent on display to be angry at his conversational rapine, his habit of darting down on every morsel of booty that other birds may hold in their beaks, with an innocent air as if it were all intended for his use and honestly counted on by him as a tribute in kind. Hardly any man, I imagine, can have had less trouble in gathering a showy stock of information than Aquila. On close inquiry, you would probably find that he had not read one epoch-making book of modern times, for he has a career which obliges him to much correspondence and other official work, and he is too fond of being in company to spend his leisure moments in study. But to his quick eye, ear and tongue, a few predatory excursions in conversation where there are instructed persons, gradually furnish surprisingly clever modes of statement and allusion on the dominant topic. When he first adopts a subject, he necessarily falls into mistakes, and it is interesting to watch his gradual progress into fuller information and better nourished irony without his ever needing to admit that he has made a blunder or to appear conscious of correction. Suppose, for example, he had incautiously found some ingenious remarks on a hasty reckoning that nine thirteens make a hundred and two, and the insignificant bantam hitherto silent seemed to spoil the flow of ideas by stating that the product could not be taken as less than a hundred and seventeen. Aquila would glide on in the most graceful manner from a repetition of his repetitious remark to the continuation all this is on the supposition that a hundred and two were all that could be got out of nine thirteens, but all the world knows that nine thirteens will yield, etc. Proceeding straight away into a new train of ingenious consequences and causing Bantam to be regarded by all present as one of those slow persons who take irony for ignorance and who would warn the weasel to keep awake. How should a small-eyed, feebly crowing mortal like him be quicker in arithmetic 
than the keen-faced forcible Aquila, in whom universal knowledge is easily credible. Looked into closely, the conclusion from a man's profile, voice, and fluency to his certainty in multiplication beyond twelves seems to show a confused notion of the way in which very common things are connected. But it is on such false correlations that men found half their inferences about each other, and high place of trust may sometimes be held on no better foundation. It is commonplace that words, writings, measures, and performances in general have qualities assigned them not by a direct regard on the performances themselves, but by a presumption of what they are likely to be considering who is the performer. We all notice in our neighbors this reference to names as guides in criticism and all furnish illustrations of it in our own practice. For, check ourselves as we will, the first impression for any sort of work must depend on a previous attitude of mind, and this will constantly be determined by the influence of a name. But that our prior confidence or want of confidence in given names is made up of judgments, just as hollow as the consequent praise or blame they are taken to warrant, is less commonly perceived, though there is a conspicuous indication of it in the surprise or disappointment often manifested in the disclosure of an authorship about which everybody has been making wrong guesses. No doubt, if it has been discovered who wrote the vestiges, many an ingenious structure of probabilities would have been spoiled and some disgust might have been felt for a real author who made comparatively so shabby an appearance of likelihood. It is this foolish trust in prepossessions, founded on spurious evidence, which makes a medium encouragement for those who, happening to have the ear of the public, give other people's ideas the advantage of appearing under their own well-received name while any remonstrance from the real producer becomes an embarrassment to each person who has paid complimentary tribute in the wrong place. Hardly any kind of false reasoning is more ludicrous than this on the probability of origination. It would be amusing to catechize the guessers as to their exact reasoning for thinking their guess likely. Why, Hupo of John's has fixed on Toucan of Magdalene. Why Shrike attributes his peculiar style to Buzzard, who has not hitherto been known as a writer. Why the fair Columbia thinks it must belong to the Reverend Merula, and why they are all alike disturbed in their previous judgment of its value by finding that it really came from Skunk, whom they had either not thought of at all, or thought of as belonging to a species excluded by the nature of the case. Clearly, they were all wrong in their notion of the specific conditions which lay unexpectedly in the small skunk, and in him alone, in spite of his education, nobody knows where, in spite of somebody's knowing his uncles and cousins, and in spite of nobody's knowing that he was cleverer than they thought him. Such guesses remind one of a fabulist's imaginary council of animals, assembled to consider what sort of creature had constructed a honeycomb, found and much tasted by Bruin and other epicures. The speakers all started from the probability that the maker was a bird, because this was the quarter from which a wondrous nest might be expected, for the animals at that time, knowing little of their own history, would have rejected as inconceivable the notion that a nest could be made by a fish, 
and as to the insects, they were not willingly received in society, and their ways were little known. Several complimentary presumptions were expressed that their honeycomb was due to one of the other admired and popular birds, and there was much fluttering on the part of the nightingale and swallow, neither of whom gave a positive denial, their confusion perhaps extending to their sense of identity. But the owl hissed at this folly, arguing from his particular knowledge that the animal which produced honey must be the muskrat, the wondrous nature of whose secretions required no proof, and in the powerful logical procedure of the owl, from musk to honey was but a step. Some disturbances arose hereupon, for the muskrat began to make himself obtrusive, believing in the owl's opinion of his powers, and feeling that he could have produced the honey if he had thought of it, until an experimental butcher bird proposed to anatomize him as a help to decision. The hubbub increased the opponents of the muskrat, inquiring who his ancestors were, until a diversion was created by an able discourse of the macaw on structures generally, which he classified as to include the honeycomb, entering into so much admirable exposition that there was a prevalent sense of the honeycomb having probably been produced by one who understood it so well. But Bruin, who had probably eaten too much to listen with edification, grumbled in his low kind of language that fine words butter no parsnips, by which he meant to say that there was no new honey forthcoming. Perhaps the audience generally was beginning to tire when the fox entered with his snout dreadfully swollen and reported that the beneficent originator in question was the wasp, which he had found much smeared with undoubted honey, having applied it to his nose, whence, indeed, the able insect, perhaps justifiably irritated at what seems to be a skepticism, had stung him with some severity, an infliction renard could hardly regret since the swelling of a snout normally so delicate would corroborate his statement and satisfy the assembly that he had really found the honey-creating genius. The fox's admitted acuteness, combined with the visible swelling, were taken as undeniable evidence, and the revelation undoubtedly met a general desire for information on a point of interest. Nevertheless, there was a murmur, the reverse of delighted, and the feelings of some eminent animals were too strong for them. The orangutang's jaw dropped so as seriously to impair the vigor of his expression. The edifying pelican screamed and flapped her wings. The owl hissed again. The macaw became loudly incoherent, and the gibbon gave his hysterical laugh, while the hyena, after indulging in a more splenetic guffaw, agitated the question whether it would be not better to hush up the whole affair, instead of giving public recognition to an insect whose produce, it was now plain, had been much overestimated. But this narrow-spirited motion was negatived by the sweet-toothed majority. A complimentary deputation to the wasp was resolved on, and there was a confident hope that this diplomatic measure would tell on the production of honey. End of chapter 11. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain.